Marketing is about value. This is a very complicated world. It's a very noisy world. And we're not going to get a chance to get people to remember much about us. No company is. And so we have to be really clear on what we want them to know about us. Right, Rosie's in the lobby. I guess we should let her in. It's going to be another like no intro episode. All right, she's coming in right now. Hey, Rosie. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> hey, sorry you? that we are 15 minutes late to this and you've been sitting in the lobby for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It was, it was very tense. Like when are they gonna when are they gonna arrive? It feels like the the lobby at the dentist where you don't know you're gonna get in. Yeah, you you can just stress and sweat. It's fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Nobody Um, will know. Nobody will know. You know, we we saw. um, It just made me think of something. Like there's been a there's been a, a a little wave in the last few weeks of new marketing podcasts that. Or, or kind of uh, you know conversation conversational like this one I'm not gonna name names it's good to have uh, you know a new wave of uh, podcasts doing what we do it's, it's great uh we can inspire each other but all one definitely feels like the diy version <laughs> like the the it feels this one is like the the french nouvelle vague film from the 70s like we're very like you know you know low budget and then the other ones feels more like the blockbusters American one with the trailers and the, you know, yeah. the intro at the beginning and the recaps and stuff. But we're not but doing that shit. You have a jingle. We do have a jingle. We do have a That's jingle, true. yeah. Thanks to that Jake. That makes me feel very pro. Oh, yeah. brilliant. The jingle is sick. I've done my part, yeah. The rest is <laughs> Do you edit them at all? Yes, sadly, we do edit them. <laughs> Yes, they they are. They're not. They don't need that much editing, but there's some annoying things like Yo's mic movements that need editing out constantly. Because I decided to have a a very uh, free-flowing mic, so I can yeah, I can be free and move around when I when I talk. For your karaoke pastimes, podcast day (laughs) karaoke night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, karaoke. Yeah, let's let's. Let's say that. I think we're, we're in the presence of a celeb, Rosie, because of all the people yeah. that's been mentioned on the podcast so far, your name comes up in almost wow. every episode. <laughs> wow. I feel so loved. <laughs> You're doing a Why good job of that? your LinkedIn. It was time. It was time. Yeah, I don't know. People just always referencing your the content that you put out. I'm glad and, it's useful. Yeah, it's good. It's getting in front of people, that's for sure. That's included. Mm. I, I had that in my notes. Did you? I didn't. Uh, we randomly had the same intro note, Jake. That's great. I wanted to say the same thing. So yeah, we're giving like, away more perfect. of the DIY vibe that we haven't shared notes. With. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I um, I was a bit late to LinkedIn. The two people. Well, firstly, it was Daphne, who I know you've spoken to, and she. Because basically, I started writing on Medium. I was very Mm. happy on Medium in my little hole of like Medium people, like not posting on LinkedIn. And Daphne was like, really, come on, you need to post on LinkedIn. I was like, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) And then Steve Young was like, you'll be, you're snoozing if you're not posting on LinkedIn. And I was like, fine. (laughs) The Steve P. Young. Steve P. Young, he does App Masters on YouTube and he, um, 
Yeah, he's good. I know. I, 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 funny You've enough, been on there, yes, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny enough, yesterday, uh, I think he's on the, um, the newsletter for this podcast. Subscribe if you don't. Uh, if not subscribed yet, um, he replied to the to the email from yesterday saying, "Why am I not on there yet?" <laughs> so, Steve. Well, I've name dropped him now. Exactly. Now, now you you you. That's your cue, basically. It's gonna happen. Well, he. Thanks to him and Daphne, they push yeah. me. I only post on LinkedIn once a week because um, I refuse to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> But then um, uh, medium medium seems like more of a commitment because like significantly longer form, right? Yeah, but I'm the type of person who I can't really just hover over things or like dip my toe in. I have to be like all in. Like in in physics class in school, I was like, I don't get any of this. And then there's a tipping point where I was like, right, I've got it all. So like medium allows <laughs> me to go like really deep, which is I think why the LinkedIn posts do quite well because I've already thought about the thing at length I've normally written it like a month ago I've thought about every angle and then I take the diagram from the medium article that looks it's got the most arrows on it and then I post it on LinkedIn (laughs) and it does well yeah yeah yeah. do you have do you have a strategy for medium like what you know in terms of um, topics on or how how to write or how to distribute it how do you get like a successful article on medium because it used to be I remember a few years ago it used to be the thing that some CEOs and founders will be like, we don't really need a blog. We just write on Medium mm-hmm. and get the exposure that way. Like, I don't know, is this still the same or did it change? Yeah, it's got its own audience and there's publications. So I write for the UX Collective and they've got, I think it's like 500,000 or 700,000 followers. So they've wow. got a newsletter, you get push notifications on the app to content in that. And I was really lucky. It was my first article. They just found it. It must have been keywords or something. And they just commented and we were like, we would love to publish this. And so now most of my articles I publish in the UX collective. So that's like already that's like a load of reach. And then Medium boosts certain articles as well. So in my charts, I can see a little dot on the graph which says Medium boosted your article um, because it thinks it's high quality. So they get boosted and it's on the UX collective and that seems to do well. And then you can get selected as like the top picks. So your articles and the push notifications of people who have the medium app. Um, So I think it's just in-depth content. It's not that fluffy. I I hope I don't like fluffy to read fluffy stuff. I read, Mm. I write stuff I want to read and I've got a low attention span. So I try and get to the point and it's always on apps and it's always a popular app. I've written a couple of things that were like how-to articles and they flopped. So I'm just doing like UX reviews of like Duolingo, Calm, Bumble, Tinder, all the big apps, Strava, got one just, pub- well, it's it's ready to be published. So yeah, it's just, and I geek out about them too. <laughs> so I'm like yeah. using apps and I'm like, I love this screen. And I've got, <laughs> I think I've only published like, I've published 16 things, but I've got 51 drafts. Oh, wow. So it's like every time I have an idea, I just like, it's like my kind of, not to-do list, it's like my notes page. It's like, oh, amazing. Like I was using the post office app and it's amazing. <laughs> so that's one. Uh, Fantasy football have amazing push notifications. Um, okay. So that's another one. But I don't, they're not drafts as in like I've not written them. It's just title, bullet point, that's it. Yeah, ideas and that's how you save your, yeah. Okay. Do you get um, any kind of inbound 
consulting leads through Medium? A lot of people come to me on Growth Mentor through Medium. I think there's been mm. a few clients that have come through. Um, yeah, some do come through. Not, not. I wouldn't say there's loads. Maybe it's like four a month. Um, it's not more than one a week. And it really depends how often I'm posting. Like I haven't posted for a couple of weeks um, mm. on Medium because I've been. Yes, all right. Can you see your reach? Yes. It was 50,000 was the best month. Wow, that's pretty cool. And you said a couple of weeks ago that you, I think you openly said that you, I don't know, there's an article that got you like 300 quid or something, or maybe more than yeah. that, maybe I misremember. Update on that. At the time, I think it was 500 <laughs> quid. It's made a thousand, yeah. over a thousand pounds. Wow, that's that nice. Article. So people just liked that one. That was the calm article around their, their the <laughs> how they tried pushes. to get me back. Yeah. yeah. Wait, how did you yeah. make money from it? So medium you as a writer you get paid and i think for for writers and creators i think it's a little bit of a dubious payment scheme but essentially a medium subscription is 50 pounds a year if you as a subscriber read five things each of those authors get 10 of those pounds each you know so it's your someone's subscription divided by the things that they read i think there might be some sort of read time calculation in there but essentially Mm. the more people who are subscribers that read your stuff the more they get paid well more you get paid sorry that's cool. So you need to have an audience of people that basically don't want to read too much and they just read your stuff. Yeah. I'm trying to read I'm trying to write shorter stuff. Like all my yeah. my writing's like eight to ten minute reads and I'm like, this is this is too too long. <laughs> so I'm trying to shorten them. So how did you how did you kind of end up in, in this world of, of growth? That's a good question. I started in PR and communications at a consultancy in London. It's really fun. But then after a while it was a bit boring just writing a load of journalist briefings and PR articles and stuff. And then I went into what three words as a growth manager, but it was essentially okay. a data analyst role. I was just analyzing the AB tests of the product team. The, but the growth team there was cool. I'm in contact with all of them and they're all amazing. And so that got me enthusiastic about growth. And then I went into a super early stage. It was, I think it was pre-seed and it was a sex therapy app for women called Furley. And I was running the okay. growth process. I went through startup core strengths with Matt Lerner. That was amazing. And then I went to Peanut, which was more of a product growth role. And now I'm freelance. Nice. <laughs> and what's your preferred kind of speciality in, of, of those? Is it the, on the product side? It seems so from your you know breakdown of UX and things like that. I think that's the most fun, personally. Just playing around with screens, trying to work out how you can get more people to a certain action or increase retention. Um, but I think less about where in the funnel I'm working. It's more about like the team and the people and the culture. If there's autonomy, if there's the ability to focus, if you can run a growth process, if you're working with other people, I like that. I don't really mind if, you know, it could be top of funnel, bottom of funnel, could be marketing, could be more, you know, CRM retention stuff. As long as you've got the autonomy and the targets and everything's nice like that, that's the best. So I, I don't think I have a preference per se. I love UX stuff. But um, yeah, it's more about the environment, I think, that matters. How do you find a switch from, um, I guess, working more brand side to now being freelance and uh, trying to get, you know, clients and mm-hmm. working with, I guess, maybe less close uh, to internal teams? And how do you find it? I really like it, personally. I think I used to think, you know, you can have a strategy, you can have the ideas, you can 
you know, have a roadmap and the growth model to how to grow. And that was it. And you could do that. You could come in, you could grow a company, get out. Great. That doesn't really work like that because there's people involved. <laughs> so there's like stakeholder management and there's politics and there's all this stuff that really slows things down. And I find as a freelancer, you get heard a lot better, actually, I find. And you can have more of an impact across lots of different companies. And I'm learning a lot faster at the moment. I think you do reach a learning ceiling, maybe because you can't people manage that much necessarily. You can't grow a team. So at the moment, I'm learning a lot. And then I think I'll probably hit um, a ceiling at some point and then maybe want to go back in-house. But at the moment, it's like I wake up and it's not like I need to start at nine. I wake up and I'm like, I know I need to deliver these things for these clients this week. I can wake up at seven. I can wake up at 10. And then just as the more efficiently I can do those things the better I can do those things. And you just mm. chill out afterwards. Like it's so much more relaxed because you've got things to do, you do the things and then you're not stressing or guilty in the other time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How did you find it? Yeah. Yeah. Same. I think it's a good summary. I think what I liked about um, doing it is uh, eventually you, um, you find a team that you really like and then that's where you can go mm. full time because you, they usually, they need you at a time where, Maybe they don't need you full time, but if you do some good job, then they do need someone full time because there's some momentum, the product mm. is there or the marketing is there or like whatever, like there's something in the metrics that gives you the right signals and you like the team, you like the founders and you like the mission and, mm. and you've done that's, that's, yeah, that's how it happened for me. So it's like a sneak peek at all these different companies. Cause I think a lot of the time I found personally, like you can be in an interview for a growth role, you can ask about LTV and CAC and runway yeah. and growth rate and all these things. And then you get in there and they're measuring everything wrong and nothing's like you thought it was. <laughs> and then it's like a car crash. Exactly. It's not like everyone lies, but in an interview, everyone is kind of putting a, a, a sugar coating on, uh, you know, like all their metrics, their vision. Everyone's loving each other. We're a family, you know, like all these kind of things. Like, no, that's not, it's, it's usually not true. But then yeah. it's the, the degree of the, like the, how deep is the, the sugar coat you know is it yeah like, uh, is it just deep. a little layer or is it a big one uh that's uh, yeah that's where you find out because i used to think back at some roles and think oh did i not ask the right questions did i not do my due diligence and did i just you know jump ship did i move without knowing what i was going to and then thinking back i'm like no i think i did ask good questions i think maybe you can always ask more but i don't think you'll never ever know what a place is like until you actually join it so being a freelancer mm -hmm. you can literally work with like you know six different companies you can see all the metrics you can understand that you can't understand a culture of a place from an interview so yeah mm -hmm. it's like a really long trial period and then you know no strings attached as well so i, I personally it's really working for me at the moment and what are you working on at the moment? Can you share a little, a little bit about what's happening in your day-to-day -day right now? What's exciting? What's exciting? Um, so I mainly work with B2C subscription apps. Mm -hmm. um, I have a particular client who has an amazing growth rate and amazing, all these metrics are like, you know, they are sh they're not sugar-coated at all. They're all real and oh, they're yeah. great. And that's probably the one I'm most excited about. And they... Um, are raising at the moment so helping put them to put together the stats for the fundraising deck working out how we measure retention working out how to show that trying to find some benchmarks so i think yeah it really ranges from like i wrote a load of push notifications the other day did a strategy the other day and then putting into an investor deck like this week so it really varies nice. and i like that 
Yeah. Yeah, that's the nice thing, I think, just the, the pure range of stuff that you get to do. I was a terrible freelancer, not going out to freelance because at the end, of, it would get to like the 15th of the month. I'd be like, oh shit, I didn't actually send any of my invoices for last month. <laughs> I'm quite honored so. with my invoices. I'm like, pay me. <laughs> I think, yeah, okay, I think you've got to be. I was, I'm not good. I'm just cut out to be paid on a set day and not have to think about it. <laughs> Past midnight, <laughs> all one, Rosie sends the invoice straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is exactly. the day, is the day. <laughs> Uh, so Rosie, the company that you just said that they're growing super fast, they, um, you know, you, you told us that you enjoy kind of thinking about product market fit and finding mm. that and measuring it. They, are they uh, at that stage? Are they growing kind of at this magic point where they haven't necessarily found it yet or they have found it and nailed it? We've done the product market fit survey. Uh, you know, the one, the superhuman product market fit survey where how disappointed would you be if you could yeah. no longer use the product? Oh, Very disappointed. That not disappointed somewhat disappointed and it was like yeah way over 40 percent one and a half times over 40 percent very disappointed and the retention shows it too and the growth rate when we're not really spending that much and growing like 20 to 30 percent month a month with big numbers like not necessarily yeah. like you know it's not like 200 people it's like thousands so yeah i think all the normally i like to measure product market fit in a couple ways so that you're not just relying on one and then remeasure it so that you're making sure it's like not fudged in any way if you get the same result over and over then you're probably measuring it all right mm. um so I, to me it's like okay this one thing is looking like a, a good indicator these other things are also looking like a good indicator and then it's like the mixed mixed methods <laughs> so i think yeah it's guess triangulating is another way to say it customer stuff quantitative and qualitative yeah, I love that triangulating PMF. That's 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 a good way to say it. Yeah, because I think with the with the product market fit surveys, if someone said to me, "Would you be disappointed to if Instagram shut down tomorrow?" I would just say no. But then I know in reality, probably in a few months' time, I'll be laying there bored, thinking, oh, "Fuck, I wish I could yeah. scroll through Instagram for a bit." So I think it's yeah, it's definitely important to have a couple of different ways to look at it. Yeah, I also think a certain cohort of people don't actually understand the question. Like, if you've got an older <laughs> yes. audience and it's like, how disappointed would you be if you can no longer use the, this product? They're like, but but I can use this product. <laughs> so I think yeah, the actual yeah. question is not, you know, if you're, you know, second language English maybe, or if you're only, yeah. you know, too young, too old maybe to understand the question. Like, I think for yeah. us it's quite common, but I know I've seen some user feedback that like, I don't get this. <laughs> yeah, mm. is the, is the mm. question not a little bit convol convoluted, like almost like a double negative and it makes it a yeah. bit tricky to understand from the first, uh, is there better other questions you can ask or like, have you tried other, other, other stuff? It's, it's hard because I think any, like you said, Jade, you, you can say one thing, but you'll do another thing. You can say you love it. You can say you'd be super disappointed, but or opposite. But then you can also look at the retention metric of how many people actually come back. Yeah, exactly. So I think, mm. yeah, all questions are challenging and have their downsides. So look at retention as well. And if it's a good good chunk of people coming back, then it's probably on the way or already at product market fit. What other yeah. metrics you mentioned is, um, yeah, there could be other things. Like, do you have any other examples of like things, qualitative, quantitative that you could look at besides the, the survey? Mm. So yeah, retention is the main one. So if people come in in month one, what percentage of people come in again on month two? I think 40% is really strong. So 40% of people coming back, that would be really good. Um, activation as well. Like, how hard is it for people to get in and get the thing like 40% as well? Like if 40% of people are getting to your core metric in the first day, in the first session, that is really good. Um, 
there's also general like how hard is it to grow like is it like sluggish and hard and single digit and you're struggling for ideas and everyone's like you know or is it feeling like wow that grass going up (laughs) (laughs) um and I know that's really vague (laughs) and I really was in most businesses was sluggish um but this one it's like it's hard to keep up um so there is that kind of feeling I think but yeah quantitative qualitative multiple metrics also like don't spend too long on it (laughs) you want to be sick fixing for it and solving for it more than you're measuring it I think yeah 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 Yeah. yeah. do you uh do you feel like you need um a little bit of paid acquisition when you're trying to find product market fit to also validate that you can acquire customers with one channel Mm. At, a, at a cost that is sustainable for the business do you take the, also that into account or maybe it comes a bit later yeah i normally actually work with products so i, I haven't done act- that many launches so i've normally come in and there's already users and sometimes there's already a channel turned on it is hard to if you've got a tiny sample size and you've got no yeah. users coming in because you've not sorted out your acquisition it's hard to measure any of these things because your sample size is too low like it's a, if there's less than like i don't know thousand users that's really low and then it's really hard because as soon as you start segmenting retention by market or retention by maybe the interest that they input into the onboarding or age, your numbers get too small to be able to compare them. And it's all super noisy. So I think um, me personally, I normally work with products who already have an audience. But if not, then, yeah, turn a tap on. You need a couple of months to optimize a paid channel. Um, but a lot of the time it can just be helpful to get the sample size to do the analyses even before you run an A-B test. Like, yeah. So I think, yeah, mm. it, it, it can be useful. Yeah, I think it's interesting because if you're growing based, let's say purely on referrals and you could like zoom out with that and say, not necessarily a product, but you could just be like an agency that grows through referrals. It's like um, you need to have product market fit for when you get to a point where you need to grow faster than you're going through referrals. So it's like when you bring someone in cold who hasn't been referred into the business, are they able to find value quick enough mm. without that destroying your, you know, your measure of, of PMF? You know, if you get to a point where you suddenly you get a massive uh, influx of investment or injection of investment, and then you need to turn the taps on and you bring people in and they're not finding value, then that's like quite an interesting place to be mm. because it's like you need uh, you need to be able to convey that message uh, easily and get people in to find value quicker than if they're just, you know, being referred in by a friend. And there's tons of apps that have grown yeah. purely through referrals. And that's an interesting problem to have. It's quite a nice problem to have probably. Yeah. I've Rather had, than no channels working. There are a couple of clients I've had where like the model is it's a celebrity or it's someone who has grown an audience in a different field. They then build an app and then they have organic acquisition into the app and they come and they're like, I want to grow this at a higher rate. Um, you can't just turn ads on because they have low context because they don't know that celebrity, that person. Yeah. Mm. And then your onboarding has been optimized for the people who know the brand. Um, and I often go in, if those sort of businesses, you go in and all the, the conversion rates are insane because obviously this person has built maybe a brand up over 20 years. And so you, you your onboarding can look shit because they don't care because they love you and they can go yeah. in and have a great time. As soon as you turn ads on, different audience, different in, lower intent, 
um, your your shitty onboarding doesn't really work anymore for that new audience. Your lifetime value goes down or your conversion rates go down. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, acquisition channel is super important. And yeah, while it not, might, you might have really low acquisition costs from like a channel, you know, for say you've written a book and that is your acquisition channel. Um, you then ha- do have a tricky time turning on another channel because they're not as good as the book. But the book mm. is not as scalable and the high doesn't have a high growth rate. So yeah, mm. you struggling, not struggling, but working through that with some clients, like and then that's where personalization comes in in the onboarding. So you can try and give people what they need in order to get them from A to B to C. Yeah, and user research, right? And that's mm. uh you know, something that you, you said that you enjoy talking about. How do you what what's your um advice, I suppose, for a company that is like many companies not really doing enough or any existing user research or or even not necessarily existing user, you know, churn user research, mm. et cetera, et cetera. What's the fir- the best place to start, do you think? I think there's not necessarily an understanding of the different types of user research and the fact that some can be super easy. Because I think one is that people don't know they're not doing enough user research. They think that just yeah. reading app reviews is good enough. It's not. <laughs> it's like either the creme de la creme of people who love you or it's the people who hate you so much. Um, yeah, and the, I think the, the main misconception is that you need a load of time and that, you know, I think a lot of businesses do three-month big research project on one thing and it takes so much time and energy and then it's a big report that gets dusty that is a model that lots of people use but if you don't have a research team and you need to like actually make some changes think it's like seeping user research into your process it's a lot more scalable easy for the team easy to get buy-in you don't necessarily even need to get buy-in for user research if you can try and just put it into your process without necessarily telling anyone so that could be like in the settings of the app, you have a Calendly link, like give the team feedback, you have a type form in there. So people, if there's a way in which you can automatically get people to book in Calendly, like 20 minute, 10 minute, 20 mm. minute calls every week, then you're accountable to actually speaking to people properly um, and not trying to cram too much into that interview and just trying to, yeah, talk to users often, integrate it into some sort of process. Don't make a big thing about it because then it freaks people out and they end up never doing it. Um, Mm. But yeah, surveys is a very valuable user research method too. So I think Mm. using a range of different things and making sure that you don't scare people off with it because they're like, this is going to take us weeks and weeks. Like, no, (laughs) 20 minutes, quick bullet point list. Um, So yeah, yeah, I think it's different ways. Yeah, I love that. I think it's important also to use it to revisit your kind of core customer personas, especially for an early launch app Mm. or business where it's like, a load of effort goes into this is June and she likes this kind of thing. And then everything is built around that. You get some users in, you're like, oh, these aren't, these aren't the, these don't align with the kind of made up persona that we assumed at the start we use this product. <laughs> We're going to scrap it and start all over again. Yeah. I personally, it's going to be a controversial point. Interesting to see what you guys think. I'm not a fan at all of customer personas putting it out there. Agree or disagree? I think there's pros and I think with any kind of framework, you can take the basics from it. You don't actually have to do it. Personas from a diversity and inclusion perspective aren't that great because you, a lot of the time you put a picture on there and it might be mm-hmm. like a white guy or it might be like a certain type of person. And then you, your brain will naturally try and find you more people like that. So I think mm-hmm. there's a diversity downside to personas. They're a bit niche, but I think having a visual of a person is good. So the things that I personally take away is, 
Mm. I try to, every time I do a user interview, I have a card, I draw a cartoon of them or I've taken a screenshot of them with their permission, (laughs) put it on like, this is Jerry, key quote that reminds me of Jerry, like this was his problems, this is where he went for solutions, this was his journey, really light touch, it's visual and it's just people... If you look at that in six months' time, you're going to jig your memory about Jerry. If you look yeah. at a bullet point list in a Slack channel in six months' time, you're not going to remember Jerry. Yeah. So I think for me, it's yeah. the visual aspect of it and the summarizing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, only then go after a Jerry. Like, you need a quantity yeah. of these, like, you know, a lot of them over time. And you start, and you have to be quite strict as well. It's like, oh, I love Jerry, but he didn't pay for it. So maybe we shouldn't <laughs> go after Jerry, you know? <laughs> Yeah. So I think yeah, that's cool. It, it, take I, with any framework, take the take the bait, the fundamentals, whatever they are, and just use them mm. as opposed to be militant about the way in which you implement something. Because yeah, I'm just so tired of all these frameworks. Yeah, it's really, it's yeah, it's really. Um, I like your answer. I'm the I'm, I'm the same uh, as you, Jake. I never like personas in the more traditional maybe old school sense of what they used to be or they used to be taught in marketing like more traditional marketing um like uh, classes or whatever and um but i like your answer i think it's cool to reference a customer have like some sort of like something to go back to that reminds you of that customer but also know that it's one customer mm. and um yeah they have attributes and it's good to to have a yeah have a note of that but uh not make it the whole product around that one person mm. um i've seen in in some of the companies that either on freelance or well i think it was mostly on the freelance time that i had there was a couple of them that was like they were literally started making personas based on nothing just mm. like their subjective opinion. And I was like, what the fuck? That's is the that? exact one that I mean. <laughs> it's like, yeah. how do you how do you know <laughs> that those two, like whatever, you know, like and, and also uh, on what you said, like the not diverse or inclusive at all. Like uh mm. how do you know that these two are the ones that you wanna you haven't talked to anyone, you, mm. you you don't know anything, you haven't tested anything. It was like oh, this, uh, that was a bad sign from the get go. So yeah, I really like your answer. Yeah. I think personas kind of jar with the whole job to be done idea because you have everybody has a different need and everybody has a different job to be done regardless of what kind of persona they fall into. I think it's much easier to go that angle. And also, Rosie, from your side, I think it makes complete sense to start like post-user and you build your persona post-having some users mm. rather than, as you just said, you know, it's like, Cool, day one of the business. Let's think of what this who this is going to appeal to, because then you're just always disappointed, or you're always going after the wrong thing, and mm. you and you build the product and the roadmap around mm. features that you think Jerry is going to want, but you've never actually met a Jerry. And then John comes in, you're like, Ugh, John's not our target customer. Yeah. Sack him off. But you don't know that you could have <laughs> mad growth with John if you just if you just met his yeah. his requirements. Mm. I've I've also gone through when I was working at Furley. We thought, okay, no, let's not use personas. What other frameworks were out there? And we started this thing with called Mindsets. I think we found it on Medium somewhere. Classic Medium. <laughs> um, and we used this thing called Mindsets, where it's like, what mindset is this person in? And it was so vague and so fluffy. And we just went around in circles trying to use this. So I think 
like whilst there's downsides of having something concrete and specific and niche, I think it helps you make decisions. Like my process would be like you first look at the data, um, you work out who's retaining, what country, what things are they doing. Sometimes that analysis is hard, but you know, if they listen to a sleep exercise, and retained better than someone listened to a mindfulness exercise, then you might say, okay, let's go after people who care about sleep, do some research, find out what keeps them up at night, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Um, like where else did they go for solutions? And then you start to build your framework, but it's based on the fact that that person retains better, or maybe they've got a higher lifetime yeah. value. And then after all that information, yeah, you might, you know, do a little visual representation of what this high quality user means. Um, but I definitely wouldn't put something on paper without that quantitative and quality yeah. triangulation. <laughs> <laughs> Back to that. Um, I want to, um, you know, something, there's something cool that I've discovered recently. I don't know if uh, maybe one of you knows about it yet, but uh, talking about gathering information, uh, we spoke about surveys and uh, maybe like in, in the flow, uh, injecting with, even within the product like type forms and things like that there is this company that is called uh, spellbound have you heard of spellbound they integrate um, third-party apps within emails so the emails all become dynamic so you can emails can become a game emails can be um, within your template could have a, the Calendly, for example, embedded within your brand. And one use case for this, for this, that, so that was really cool, was from uh, Mr. Beast, who sent an email to 200,000 people with a game within the email, which was the first user who clicks 500 times on that button will get, I don't know, it was like $100,000 or something crazy. That email got 2 million clicks off of 200,000 <laughs> people. So it's like 10 clicks per user, right? Yeah. So it games the old email thing because you get like a massive amount of like click-through rate within your email. Mm. And the average was 10 clicks per user. And after 10, 10 clicks, if you are too slow, you still got something. Like you got a present or there was like a surprise or something. But first of all, it looked great I, I'll, I'll share it with you the link I'll, I'll try and put it in the show notes as well for this uh, this episode but uh, so yeah it's this company and I've, I've never seen that before so you, there's like very creative way you can use that so then every time your users or whatever receive an email from you they can expect something a bit more than everyone else like it could be a game it could be like an interesting mm. uh, survey or something that you're gonna uh, more interactive, more interactions within the email itself, without having to link away from the email. Mm. That's the that's the trick. That's the the, the beauty. Yeah. I've seen like embedded user research, like questions in the email, and I feel like that might get you more responses. I'm just gonna open the email, uh, not the email, the the window because um, I'm allergic to wasps, and a wasp has just come in. Oh, oh no. <laughs> 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 I like that you said, I'm just going to open the email. Yeah, like the, um, <laughs> I was like, no. I've got a funny story about being allergic to wasps, if you want to go off piece of it. Last Christmas, I was asleep. It was 3 a.m. on Christmas Day, and I got stung by a watch on my wrist. And I've been stung many times in my life. Like that year, I got stung a couple of times. And then uh, I just like 
reacted to it and my arm oh. grew like a Michelin man <laughs> and I had like this reaction but the ambulances were on strike and I kept getting disconnected so I just lay there watching like Netflix with my sister with this enormous arm and ever since then the doctor the doctor was like that was really serious you should have come in I was like it was Christmas you know like come on I'm not going to A&E on Christmas so now I have to unfortunately bring an EpiPen with me but apparently there's a max oh, amount wow. you can get stung in your life so beware <laughs> I've, I've hit the I've is hit that true peak. yeah so i've hit, I've hit what the you peak. Can, when they just won't sting you anymore no as in like <laughs> <laughs> other way around i don't know i can't like there's a max amount of venom that your body can take like sting. oh right yeah yeah, yeah. so oh, yeah. yeah no i'm i'm immune now they just don't come near me <laughs> i thought you might have so much venom in your body that it like turns them off I think you become a a Marvel character, the 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 wasp. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you actually get lady. Maybe it was a superpower you got in your arm. You should have used it. Yeah, you you should have seen it. Hang on. (laughs) The more you get stung, there becomes a point where you can't take it anymore, and it becomes and it gets worse for you. Yeah, and you yeah. So like apparently now, if I keep getting stung, like my heart will stop or something. Like it starts with an anaphylactic shock, and then you're you're. I had a mini anaphylactic shock. I had everything minus the throat closing. Next time it will be throat closing, and then after that you can get heart problems. Yeah, it's really serious. Do you need a? Do you have an EpiPen now with you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I just don't know where I put it. <laughs> well, that's not. It's in the start, bag. It's it? in my bag. That's why I was like, should I open the window? What still hasn't left though? It's actually on. Anyways, <laughs> I don't. Have you rest. seen any Asian hornets yet? I think I saw one the other day. I'm not quite no. sure. They're pretty scary. Huge, a huge wasp, yo, an Asian hornet. I thought it was a film. In... <laughs> I was like, is that the new <laughs> film coming? <laughs> it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Very good. They're big no. though. I used to live in Southeast Asia when I was younger and they were like enormous. Wow. Well, great segue into maybe talking a little bit about growth models and forecasting. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how is he going to save this? The <laughs> growth link- of your forearm, Rosie. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I um yeah, there's no there's no good segue to this. Um let's talk a little bit about forecasting forecasting growth. Um to be honest, that's something that I'm really interested in because uh, I feel like my version of this is uh again very DIY. Uh so maybe I need a little bit of uh some frameworks just make up the numbers right well yeah exactly just open google <laughs> sheets and it's like you know just apply a coefficient to all the cells and you go you drag it to 2026 and then uh, you good to go you know bish, pray bash, that you bash. don't die yeah bish, bash, bash. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so um yeah do you have do you have any tips for us like how do you how do you start with this it's funny because i feel like most growth people i don't I feel like everyone does it their own way and we're all just there creating these random little Google, messy Google sheets. Mm. Um, So I am trying now to build a template for one which I can actually reuse. But a lot of businesses are so different that you can't actually use the same model. Um, I think it is quite scary for a lot of people to start because staring at a blank, I love fiddling with the Google sheet and, you know, just plugging things, changing things, seeing if it works. Some people find it really scary, like staring at a blank sheet. So I normally take quite a few iterations, but I start, depends. If it's like, what budget do we need to spend to get to here? Or it might be like, how do we get to here? 
like you can start with the end and start with where you are um and then having a general idea of your growth model is a good start so i think before you even get to the sheet get a miro board or a fig jam users come in users do this thing users pay us they pay us this amount this many people renew like really basic and then you put that into number form and then you put that number form into the sheet then when it gets hard is the retention part of it how many people come back that's when it gets really hard i don't think i've personally nailed that but i generally just do you know of the new of the people that are using the product in the time period how many are new how many are returning and then how much you need to improve both those numbers to get to your desired result and i i like it as a visual tool to be able to say hey you know, from to get from A to B, this is the you know the result you want. You're gonna have to spend mm. this amount, and here's the three levers that are the biggest to move that. This one, you know, you want to mm. move this lever, but look, what happens if you move that lever? Nothing really changes. So we should focus on this yep. lever, um, and you're gonna to need to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it always comes down to that at the end when uh, when scale comes into the discussion. But um, yeah, that's no, good. It's good. Yeah, I like that. I think you always uncover. You can always kind of uncover a lever that looks. I mean, the the one that always does it for me is like your if from a if you if you have a paid acquisition in there, is the click through rate of your ads. Mm. Because people are like, I need to improve my conversion rate by fifteen percent to make this work. You're like, but if you just get your click through rate, which is the dog shit at the moment, like point one three to one percent, you're like tripling your revenue every single month. And that, in my opinion. Is uh, an easy lever, you know. You have yeah. to you, you you put a ton of experiments in, in uh, an iterative kind of uh, creative design process in there, mm. and you can drive that up. And um, a, a, a way that we sometimes approach it at Hex is that um, a client will say like, "This is my problem," and I'll go in and look at all the different areas of from their acquisition all the way through to their retention. And you take like the the five areas that you think are most impactful, just as you said, Rosie. And then you just map out like what happens if we just increase each of these by 10%. So not like going from 1% conversion rate to 11% conversion rate. It's like going from 1% to 1.1%. And things that really shouldn't be too difficult to do if you have experimentation and testing in there. And then that is that kind of demystifies the process a bit because it's like, how do I change my conversion rate to get to where I want to be? But you're like, no, actually, you only have to tweak your conversion rate by a tiny amount and your click-through rate by a tiny amount. And then your retention rate by a tiny amount, and that all has massive compounding benefit, mm. compounding impacts across the board. Um, I think that's quite a nice way to approach it because then you don't feel too stressed focusing on changing one thing. You can do a load of experiments across the board, um, and compounding it kind of it kind of ramps up and it can get them to where they want to go. And I think at the beginning, a lot of teams and newly formed growth teams, or maybe all the levers are new, especially in an early stage business. Yeah. And you might think, oh, if we just increase that, we can result in great growth. Or if we just increase that, but then you might find that it's actually really hard to move one of those things. And it's not hard to move the other one of those things. So first, mm. first is mapping things out you know, theoretically, then putting it into a sheet, then coming out with the things you might want to move. And then it's the process of working out how easy they are to move because some are way harder than others. Um, pricing, for example, you can just put it up. Yeah. <laughs> pricing is, yeah, I found that like conversion rates in, in like a B2C app, like the biggest thing you can change is how well you monetize, like putting the paywall a bit mm. earlier, mm. pricing, you know, copy. Mm those things are quite easy to do and have quite a big impact versus, well, it yeah. depends, you know, ad creative, if you've been testing for a while, you know, maybe you've hit a ceiling there already and maybe there's some easier places to move the needle. So I think it depends on, you know, your team and 
maybe they've exhausted a lever already and now it's just incremental tiny things as opposed to like a big a yeah. big lever somewhere else yeah i agree and the you know in checkout upsells i think it's quite a big one sometimes especially for an e-com or for a charity you know charity doesn't have uh you know they, they, their revenue comes from donations if you're talking about kind of digital fundraising and then you can do interesting things that uh, like um partner with a print on demand and it's like you someone donates and you say great you you know you can buy an exclusive x whatever the charity name is like donate donor tote for a tenner and that's got a little bit of margin baked in there and then they're getting even more revenue from that mm. and so it's, it's not necessarily always about increasing or it is increasing average order value but not necessarily by increasing the price of the individual yeah. items but it's like how can Add-ons. you do a creative upsell yeah exactly on on monetization do you have a framework to know for example you've got you've, you've got an app that you know charges i don't know four pounds a month and you're like okay we're gonna go to six <laughs> you know because like, because even if we lose i don't know 20 percent of our users we're still good we're still making more money um do you have like a, a few steps i know you do because I've, I've seen your i've seen your presentation was it last year at the <laughs> promotion summit um how do you approach like pricing like because you said like it is one of the easiest because technically in an app especially in app subscription um ecosystem like it's pretty straightforward in to change the price the code or whatever or like within or within the app store mm. um but how do you research that before making the change how i used to do it is random <laughs> how i do it now it's slightly different <laughs> not random but i used to be like oh you know do some competitor research where where is our app compared to everyone else okay they charge more let's just go with that i think i found that most apps charge too cheap you're there's this fear that no one's going to buy it so what they end up do is doing is putting it out for lower but then it's harder to increase the price because your community is like in uproar once they especially if they talk to each other about it so pricing low is a common um first time like i guess mistake you're worried no one's going to buy it so you do it too cheap but i um nowadays there's a easy survey that you can send out called the van westendorp (laughs) pricing survey and um, it's essentially got four main questions. It's like, how cheap would it be for you to think or be suspicious about the quality? How expensive would be expensive, but you'd still buy it? How expensive would be stupidly expensive and you wouldn't buy it? And then what would be a good price? And then there's some extra questions which mm. are, you know, say your headspace and you say, um, if, if you think about calm and, you know, zero to 100 where would you put us against calm like how would you rate us against like this competitor higher or lower so that sort of easy decision making for a user higher or lower less or more that's mm. quite good mm. another thing is like if you're trying to work out what would be, maybe be in an extra premium tier here's all the features how would you rank them in you know highest to lowest so there's like various questions you can ask people one is around those four van western dog pricing questions and once you've got your results to that you can then plot what's too expensive, what's too cheap for the majority of users. And there's a little gap in the middle, which is like the area that you should then test in. And I would say go more expensive. And then you can always do some sort of concessions for students, or you can do discounts, or you can do upsells. And there's various ways you can go above and below, but just don't do too cheap. And you can do a very easy Mm -hmm. bit of research about, you know, how should we price? What should we put in our subscription tiers? How should we price ourselves against competitors? Um, And I think a lot of people just kind of, 
you know put a stick in the sand which you can do but it's also like yeah. you know it doesn't take that long to to survey some users exactly and how do you um do you do that to your own customers yeah so i think they have to have used it before yeah. um else then if not you're gonna have to say like imagine you were using this product da, 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 mm -hmm. and then it's not as accurate because then you can lead people one way or another so ideally it's to your current customers ideally it's like 200 people or so um and maybe you don't have 200 people if that's the case you could try and you know chat yeah. in more detail to maybe five so it really depends like how many people you have but ideally it's around 200 pre you know two, 200 customers who are already there yeah, yeah you want you want about 200 answers yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, to make it like uh, at least a few hundred to make it worthwhile that's interesting because uh, i think in most from most apps their price especially at the beginning comes from just like literally a bit of guessing work and a bit of like like you said like underestimating your product because you're not sure and that but what i find very interesting is when usually like there's someone like me would come in as a freelance person like they would just like it would just be a given like oh this is this is our strategy and how did you like how did you come about this it's like oh we just uh, picked it in like august 2021 and, and it's like oh you haven't tested anything like no that's uh, like and and then they feel kind of blocked within that framework it's like and it's like no remember like you just picked something in the wind like you know <laughs> like it, maybe you could charge 10 pounds and people you will still value your product the same way and you would have made like 10x the revenue since yeah. then you know so yeah fine, fine. but it's good that's great i'm gonna look it up for sure uh rosie what about um kind of mentors you you gave us a bit of your kind of history into your career did you have a mentor are you a mentor to other people right now what's your kind of feeling on that and this off the back of last episode we had lewis on and there was like a first one in a little run that we're going to do about interesting ways that people got in kind of inspiration for younger people looking to break into the world of, of growth and marketing and i think mentors is a really interesting one something you mentioned that uh, you'd be interesting to talk about i had a great mentor and still do have one and, and yo i don't know about you probably but is it me Rosie... no <laughs> <laughs> no i'm sorry to say it's not uh, <laughs> rosie how about you how, how do you what do you think about mentors i have a load of mentors like I think both sides of mentoring, being a mentee and being a mentor are so valuable. So I was first a mentee, but I wouldn't, I never called them my mentors. So it was at what three words I said, like the team was amazing. Like I loved the team of what three words and I learned so much from them. And I went from that into kind of the deep end of a growth role where I had to do analytics, product, marketing, brand, like everything. And I was really in the deep end and I thought, okay, I, I need to speak to someone. I feel like I'm going nuts. And so I just reached out to my old, it's, it's always old colleagues. And then so I reached out and I was like, hey, I've got this product idea, but I'm not sure about it. Would you be open to chatting? And then they would chat. And afterwards I said, this was so useful. Can I make this recurring? Like every six weeks, every, mm. every four weeks? And they were like, yeah, sure. And so I did that for product, I did that for performance marketing, I did that for analytics. And then I had this amazing like group of people and I said to them, please, can you let me pay you? Cause I get so much value out of this. And all of them were like, no, we get a lot of value about this too because they could share things with me um, mm. as well and they would get feedback. So it kind of turned into peer mentoring 
And so I had a, someone who's now the, a UX, UX lead at Klarna. They're my like product go-to. The performance marketing person at Thriver, they're my performance marketing go-to. And then, um, shout out to Rich and Ben. And then, funnily enough, someone who interviewed me, but didn't work at the company, I just felt really vibey with them on the interview. And then I was like, I've really enjoyed this. I literally can't speak to anyone about analytics. I literally just Google it. I've got no one senior in analytics who's personable and will like, you know, wants to answer my questions. He was like, oh, I'd love to be your mentor. Just hit me up whenever. And so that's my kind of, they used to be head of data somewhere and that's of course some good companies. So I've got data, I try and like cover my bases. And then it also means that sometimes if you're struggling in a role, not being listened to, you can say this person with this title and mm. this company said this mm. thing and it's so much better. So I think the mentoring mm. side, and I still pull on those strings because they're so helpful and if you've got imposter syndrome and you're like i'll do this someone will be like you can't you, can, you can do this actually and you're like oh yeah yeah i can can i <laughs> um <laughs> and daphne's a really good mentor to me as well like going freelance i just didn't know what to do and she's always super helpful so daphne as well is another one more on like the you know what's a contract <laughs> what should my terms be <laughs> like that sort of stuff <laughs> do you have an accountant i can use um so i think that's the men T side and then the mentor side I signed up to growth mentor by Daphne suggested it when I started out didn't have any clients she was like it's good practice and I was feeling quite low after my last job I didn't feel like I was good in the job and then these people on growth mentor they always need your help and you're so much more of a specialist than they are because they're trying to juggle too many things so everything you say is gold and it makes you feel like the shit (laughs) (laughs) so if you're struggling with imposter syndrome just do some mentoring and the bar is really low and like you don't have to be an you might think I've got nothing to say I'm not an expert but everyone thinks that and then when you end up speaking to these like you know this girl in a bedroom who has this idea she will love everything you say because Mm. you are an expert if you if you look at it in terms of like years experience versus these people so I think Mm. get some mentors just reach out to people you know um and be a mentor as well be a mentee be a mentor it's amazing i love it so so yeah. useful that's awesome that's awesome and also mentors mentors don't necessarily have to be more senior than you i find like sometimes relationship can go like it can go either way it can be someone like that is more junior than you but is more specialized into that one thing like you said that is very valuable to you and also mentors don't even need to know they are your mentors they could just be uh, people that you just consume all their content they don't even know that um you're like lurking for everything <laughs> they write or say on a youtube video and one uh, and for me one of them for funny enough and i did say that to him uh in different words but um steve young um like I watched these YouTube videos from like you know, six years ago, like from the early days, like I was watching all the videos and like Loki was like a, a mentor on the app side of things for many, many, um, like for a long period of time. And um, when I met him for the first time, was it last year? I was like, yeah, I was like, man, I'm like Star Trek. Like, like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I like consume so much of your stuff. You didn't even know, like commenting sometimes. Oh, this is great. Thanks for sharing. But um, that could also be a version of like uh, uh, mentoring or having a mentor. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. Just get those recurring meetings in. Super short, 20, 30 minutes, come yeah. prepared. Like send them things in advance. Um, ask them if they want any feedback on things from you. And I think mm. it keeps it short, keeps it quick and keeps it really efficient. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. That's gone super quick. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's because you were 15 minutes late, Jake. <laughs> no, because we've gone 15 minutes over. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rosie. Perfect. I will go and sit in the sun. Then I'm going to go for a swim. Yeah. Oh, oh, lucky. It's the life of a freelancer. Yeah, life of a freelancer. Amazing. Love it. Bye. Dope. <laughs>